Black British Historians Matter, a conversation between Lenny Henry and David Olasogo. It would be impossible to create a collection of essays titled Black British Lives Matter and not look at the role of black historians. History has become a major battleground in how we think of black people's place in British society. The role history plays has come to the forefront in discussions around Black Lives Matter as protesters topple statues of former slave owners and the National Trust examines how it incorporates the history of slavery in presenting the country's past, to name just two examples. However, in a chapter covering black British historians, we were eager not just to repeat some of the historical facts about black people's presence in Britain, which dates back to at least the Roman Empire, or highlight the complex past, to put it politely, as some of our national heroes. Instead, we wanted to take a wider perspective and get dispatches from the front line of the current so-called culture wars and talk to a black historian about how he sees his role in these politically charged times. We also thought it was important to recognise that the struggle for systemic evaluation of black British lives dates back much further than the recent Black Lives Matter slogan and to put recent events into a historical context. We asked Britain's most famous black historian whether he would give us his perspective on why black British historians matter. No bribes were made, apart from the promise of a large cappuccino and a stack of patisserie as high as the top of his twisty dreadlocks. David Olasoga's list of achievements is far too long to print here. He has written seminal works on the First World War, including The World's War, 2014, which won First World War Book of the Year. He presented and produced the BAFTA award-winning Britain's Forgotten Slave Owners for the BBC. And I should also mention my own personal favourite, which is currently on my bedside table, Black and British, A Forgotten History, 2016, which was awarded both the Longman History Today Trustees Award and the Penn Hessel Tiltman Prize. Luckily for us, he agreed to talk over Zoom, and we covered everything from how we should view eating toffee in Edinburgh to why we should not focus too much on toppling statues. But we started the conversation with me asking how a black kid growing up in the northeast of England became obsessed with Britain's past. Thanks so much, David, for agreeing to talk to us about the importance of black British historians. You are one of the most preeminent black historians in the UK, and definitely the best known. For me and millions of Britons, you are literally the superhero of history. So, a simple question to start. How did you become interested in history? I mean, Bruce Wayne became Batman because a bat flew in through a window. Spider-Man was bitten by a radioactive spider. Was there a similar experience? Were you bitten by a radioactive history book? <laughs> Not quite. Growing up in the 1970s and 80s in the northeast of England, my family lived in a council house in Gateshead. Everybody was obsessed with history. Well, to be precise, all the boys at school were obsessed with the Second World War because it was what was on the television all the time. We used to play all the time with our plastic airfix soldiers. The magazines and comics we read were all about it. So I got into the Second World War because all my friends were into it, and it was a major part of British culture growing up. Then one day, my mother, who is white and British, told me that in Lagos, the city of my birth, the place where my father lives, there is a memorial to Nigerians, just like me, who fought and died in the war. And I had absolutely no idea about this and struggled to believe that this was the case. To give an example of how much I struggled with this new bit of information, I had loads of plastic airfix soldiers and I remember very clearly going back and scrutinising these soldiers 
very carefully. I had a box of British 8th Army soldiers. The 8th Army was the army that fought under Montgomery in North Africa. And on the cover of the box was a picture, a painting of those soldiers fighting in the desert. And I remember spending hours looking at that box and seeing all those white soldiers. And so I naturally presumed that the 8th Army was made up of white men. In reality, the British Army was actually one of the most multicultural forces ever brought into existence. It was full of Indian soldiers, soldiers from all over the empire, but there was nothing about this aspect of the Second World War in the toys or the films I watched on television, nothing in the magazines and comics I read that suggested for a second that it was anything other than all white people involved in this most brutal of conflicts. So my mother telling me about Nigeria was aptly discordant. When she said people of your father's ethnicity, Yoruba Nigerians, fought in that war, fighting alongside Indians and people from the West Indies and other parts of the British Empire, it didn't make sense. So that was a catalytic moment for me. It was my white mother saying, both sides of you, not just the British white working class side, but both sides of your heritage were involved in this history. I'm always blown away when I see pictures or footage of people that look like me in the Second World War in army uniforms signing up in the Caribbean. Interestingly, at school, history was just facts and dates, and similarly, I probably had the same distorted view of the past. So what's your job as a historian? Is it to correct these perceptions? Well, I think the job of an historian of black British history is very very different to the job of other types of historian, because the job of an historian of black British history is one of recovery. For people who are studying historicised parts of British history, their job is often to try to find new angles into stories that are familiar or histories that are well recorded. But black history is about recovery. It's about finding people in the past, finding connections that have been deliberately obscured and trying to draw these links. Simply knowing that those connections are there and knowing that these biographies exist in some ways isn't enough because we're so trained to think of history in these compartments that we can still be blind to it. So I'm constantly rediscovering the extent to which the programming worked on me I know how the trick is done. I've been behind the scenes and I've seen the smoke and mirrors and yet sometimes the trick has been done so effectively that every so often it still works on me. I'm still thinking things through and realising connections that are obvious once you think them through, but they had never occurred to me before. One example is the black connections to my Scottish ancestors on my mother's side of the family. As a kid, we had no money. So for our holidays, we would go up to Edinburgh on day trips. We would go to the castles and we loved it. And one of the reasons we loved it so much was because we got loads of sweets. We associated Scotland with sweets. Tablet, toffee and shortbread, it's all sugary. So a lot of the time we were on a sugar high, climbing and clambering around castles. My favourite sweets were called... Highland toffees. They're the green tartan wrapper. 
and it was only when I was at university studying slavery and discovering the disproportionate number of slave owners in Jamaica who were Scottish that I worked out that my Scottish sweet tooth was connected to slavery. The reason that there's Highland toffee is not because they're growing sugarcane somewhere in the Highlands. It's because Scotland was disproportionately involved in sugar slavery. So my associations of everything that made going to Edinburgh great as a six-year-old are actually connected to slavery. Similarly, there are connections when I think about another love of mine, music. At university, one of my favourite bands, and they should be everyone's favourite band, was Bob Marley and the Wailers. And if you think about it, the names of the original three members of that group are all Scottish. Robert Nestor Marley. Marley is a Scottish name because Bob Marley was half Scottish. Peter Mackintosh. Peter Tosh. Well, that is obvious. And Bunny Livingston, who has just sadly departed. Marley, Mackintosh and Livingston. Three black guys on an island in which a third of the slave owners were Scottish means a third of the people have ancestors who were owned by Scottish slave owners. And the connections never occurred when I was younger, sitting at university listening to Bob Marley and the whalers and eating my Highland toffee. I was utterly blind to it. I imagine it's like having a massive penny drop on your head from a great height when you see these connections. When you're a black historian... It's a very different arena of history to be in because most of history is about fighting against accidental obscurity, the natural way in which the past is forgotten, and historians reclaim aspects of the past and make them into history. However, I think what you're dealing with when you come to stories of black history and empire is a process of deliberate amnesia, deliberate forgetting, intentional obscuring. I guess these are things that affect us all. We're looking at the world through a different lens. But how important is it that a black historian addresses black history versus normal history? Well, I would absolutely fight for a black historian to be able to study any aspect of history that has no obvious connection to the story of their African heritage. But the problem is that for the past 500 years... The entanglements between Europe and Africa and Africans in the New World mean that it's impossible not to acknowledge an African connection in most aspects of history. From the age of exploration onwards, it's pretty hard not to bump into Africa and Africans because Africa is part of the world. And in some ways, that's the heart of the problem with the way we envisage black history. Africa has been taken out of the world. These connections were deliberately severed, so it's about taking this continent and plugging it back into all of these connections. And the more you do it, the more you realise that you can't understand any European country, and particularly a country with an imperial past like Britain. You will fail to understand the United States and multiple other countries without understanding their connection to Africa. The other big penny drop moment for me is the story of Britain's northeast and the Industrial Revolution, which, growing up in Gateshead opposite Newcastle, was a big part of my education. It's the only period in British history 
when the North was richer than the South. And we're not going to forget that in a hurry because it ain't coming back any time soon. It's at the heart of our culture, our working-class Northern identity forged in the Industrial Revolution. And I remember being told that the mills of Lancashire were being fired by the coal of the Northeast, the Tyne Valley from under our feet, that was cut from the earth by our ancestors and by machines invented in Newcastle, Jarrow and other places, by these great industrial heroes. And we learned about those heroes and great inventions, the water frame, the spinning jenny. And all of the time we were taught this, we were never once told where the cotton for these mills came from. And once you know that the story of the Industrial Revolution cannot be honestly told without the story of American slavery and the almost two million African Americans who struggled and eventually died to produce that cotton, then you realise the whole understanding of our past is dishonest. You couldn't tell the story of the Industrial Revolution without talking about coal. So how the hell can you write about it without talking about where the cotton comes from? And so, what you're fighting against as a black historian is obscurity. It's forgetting. But it's also a deliberate need in this country to take out these parts of history that are uncomfortable. History to me is like a stone that we need to pick up and look at the underside and see the bugs crawling around there because that's where you find the interesting bits of history. You are literally there with a big magnifying glass. You're right. Some parts are uncomfortable. I grew up in Dudley in the Midlands, and chains are a part of the Black Country flag. I remember an event once when I opened the Black Country archive, and a man ran up to me and said, Hold this flag. I looked down and I saw these chains, and I thought to myself, We're talking about how the Black Country participated in the Industrial Revolution, and oh shit, we made chains here. What was the predominant use for change during that period? It must have been for the purposes of slavery. That whole thought process for me was shocking. A massive penny drop from on high. Now, I want to talk to you about the George Floyd tragedy. As a person of colour and a historian, how did you view it? Can you separate those two things? When it first hit the news, I tried to hide. It was during lockdown. Everything was difficult. I couldn't watch and I still haven't watched it. I just watched parts of it on the news. And I initially presumed that the normal script would play out. The charges would be dropped, or there'd be a court case and there would be no convictions. And that all that would happen was that another black person had been killed in front of cameras and those involved would not face the consequences, which in some ways is a real expression of power. But then the normal script wasn't followed, and I watched this phenomenon of protests growing. What was really interesting was watching how the normal response from the authorities, the traditional strategies of obfuscation and defensiveness that usually work in Britain, didn't work. What black people were told in the weeks after the murder of George Floyd is that you can't compare British racism to American racism. That's what we heard on Newsnight. BBC's nightly current affairs programme. 
as one commentator after another said that black British people were wrong to look to African-American examples for inspiration. We were told the UK police aren't armed and therefore it is not the same. They said this despite the fact that guns had nothing to do with George Floyd's death. And when black British people talked about the long list of black people who have died in police custody again, it was all dismissed. And this normally works. But for some reason, and I still don't fully know what the reason was, it didn't. It just didn't take this time. The fact is, it's historically illiterate to put forward these arguments. For decades, black people have looked to the African-American example for inspiration. I'm from Newcastle, a city that Frederick Douglass, African-American abolitionist, came to in the 1840s. And you know, his manumission, his freedom from slavery, was purchased by two Quaker women in a square in Newcastle. Martin Luther King was given an honorary degree from Newcastle University. Malcolm X came to Britain. Stokely Carmichael came to Britain. Black people have always looked to the African-American struggle as an example and for inspiration. So it was historically illiterate. But the most important thing was that it was ineffective this time. I can only put it down to two things. One is that the difference between what happened with George Floyd and all of the other depressingly long list of murders at the hands of American police was the pandemic. I think the pandemic did a couple of things. It took old people off the streets, giving the streets to the young who used it for protests. And the pandemic also turned down the volume on everything else. My depressing conclusion is it took something like lockdown, in which so many other things that would have been in the news weren't, to turn down the volume enough for our society to actually hear the protestations of black people. He had to turn off so many other sources of distraction to hear us. And this weird historical juncture meant that there was enough background silence for black people finally to be heard. I know you've talked about it before, but as a black historian, I have to ask you about the issue of statues and the Black Lives Matter protests. I'm worried how the issue of statues, even though I supported the toppling of the statue of Edward Colson, a major slave trader here in Bristol, how that has been weaponized by people who wanted a very useful distraction. And I wrote a slightly pleading piece in The Guardian saying that the statues are a distraction. It's racism, that's the thing we've got to topple. So I don't want to get too distracted about the statue incidents, but talk about the other thing I find fascinating about this moment we're living in. The demonstrations are being led by a generation who think about race differently. And what strikes me when I talk to people in their 20s, people who are students, people who protested, they have aspirations and ambitions that literally never occurred to me to even entertain. So when you talk to those kids, their aim and what they regard as their generational mission is to destroy racism and to weed it out of their society. It never occurred to me. That's a big job. It never occurred to me that it was even possible. 
And maybe I'm right and they're wrong, or the other way around. The fact is, I put limitations on what I thought was possible. I always presumed racism would always be here, that it was a given. But the truth is, it was not always here. It was invented. So in some ways, my own position is historically dubious. The fact that I never even dreamed of having the aspirations that these young activists think are their normality and their generational mission shows me something is radically different. And it's not just the younger black generation. Talking to young white kids now about their fervour for anti-racism is just astonishing. I think we have a moment when there's a generational shift. To me, this generation appears to be a group of people who believe that they have a mission focused on equality in all its forms, sexual, racial, gender, sexual orientation. And they are frighteningly committed to it. It's remarkable. I wrote loads about Black Lives Matter in this generation. They topple statues. They organise literally hundreds of marches, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. It's impressive. We've talked a lot about Black Lives Matter during this conversation, and you've linked it almost exclusively during our chat to George Floyd. So here comes the confession. In putting this book together, Marcus, my co-editor, and I have actually argued about the title and whether it is right to use the phrase Black British Lives Matter. How do you feel about using the phrase? To me, the job of black British historians at this moment is to fight against the deep and deliberate toxification of ideas and phrases that are not beneficial to us. Black Lives Matter has been dismissed as political. It's been made into a pejorative. It's been attacked with counter-phrases like all lives matter because that's what's happened to every black political movement that you can think of over the last hundred years and further back. In 1919, when black soldiers from the US Army returned to America after fighting in the First World War, they fought in some cases in the French Army because the American Army wouldn't allow them to fight. And they came back filled with ideas by W.E.B. Du Bois, African-American historian and pan-Africanist, and a belief that they had earned the right as had their ancestors who fought in the U.S. Civil War, to have their civil rights taken seriously. And their movements were absolutely discredited. They were said to have been Marxists because they had been on the Western Front, even though this was a long way from the Eastern Front where the Russians actually were. They were dismissed as Marxists. They were said to have been ruined by the liberalism of France and the fact that they've been allowed to have relationships with French women and therefore couldn't fit back into American society. And that movement, that political moment of those soldiers who came back with very modest, reasonable demands, they were absolutely discredited. Because that's what happens. Instead of a moment of reckoning with American racism and rewarding people for their service in the war, what you got was the Red Summer of 1920, the mass lynching of African Americans, both soldiers and civilians, a spate of race riots and violence in America, because that's how people have coped with black politicization. 
They've taken our organizations and have made them toxic. They've made white people frightened of them. They've made us scared to say the names of our organizations or to acknowledge our leaders. They've made everything, even the most basic demands for equality, seem extreme. The fact that Black Lives Matter is being discredited as a Marxist organization is exactly what happened in 1919. And the tragedy is, think where America would be now, how America could be leading the world on these issues if it had only listened to those black soldiers in 1919 and not dismissed them as Marxists. This history is a history of missed opportunities. This history is a moment of forks in the road and being pushed down the wrong avenue. Well, we know how it's done. We've seen the trick done thousands of multiple times before, and part of it is by discrediting our organisations, by making us scared of embracing the organisations that are there, that we built to fight for our rights. So I embrace Black Lives Matter, and I think the stories need to point out the process being used to attack it. We've seen this before. Our job as black historians is to say, this has been done in the past, and look at what it costs all of us. So I guess we'll stick with the title of the book. You've given the example of how you view Black Lives Matter through a historical lens, but how does your life experience impact on how you view and analyse history? I think, as a black person, I find myself seeing tropes that my colleagues often don't see and having to point out what, to me, causes discomfort. Ways of seeing the world that are unexamined and come from a place of racism or a colonised mentality. And as an historian, I'm often pointing out different issues. I see myself as a politicised black person who is an historian but the complication is that while I'm fascinated by black history, also the thing I'm more passionate about in all of history is the First World War. And this goes to the heart of why black British historians matter. The reason we matter is that we are creating and recoupling parts of our history. OK, hold on. This is one part of this conversation that I want to get right. So let me phrase this better. Black British historians matter because we are the people who uncover the lost lives and the lost histories that were deliberately concealed. We are showing the chapters of British history that are relevant to all of us. Most people who read my books are white. Most people who watch my television programmes are white. And that's fine because... This is a shared history. Black British history for too long was seen as something only for black people. It was marginal, it was dismissed. It was something to have in Black History Month. Let them have it, you know. Let's make a quick programme or cheap book. The idea that this is actually at the heart of British history and that it's a shared history that belongs to all of us, that's the thing that's been denied. That's the thing that was dismissed, and it was dismissed out of ignorance. It was a presumption that we didn't really matter, that we hadn't been anything important or done anything significant. But we were there at every critical event in British history 
in the last 500 years because the empire was the biggest story of British history for the past half a millennium. And black and brown people were at the centre of it. But because it was uncomfortable, those connections were broken and many of them were broken deliberately. My job is like rewiring a house. The way I see it is, British history is like a rambling mansion. There are some rooms that are occupied and some that are forgotten. So it's about opening the doors to those rooms that are cold and forgotten. They've been boarded up. And showing people the stories and the phenomena inside those rooms that affect all of us, that's my job. It's about getting us out of that tiny portion of the great massive mansion in which we all live and with which we are so familiar, in that we know every detail of every inch of wallpaper because we've looked at it too much, and looking at the rooms that we never set foot in. And finally, while it might seem like one of the most simple and banal of phrases, it doesn't make it any less true or important. Black British history is British history. David, thank you for letting us into some of those boarded-up forgotten rooms.